Welcome to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all of the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. Most of the time, when researching trans history, I'm able to get a firm grasp on who my subjects were. Even if not much information about them exists, I can usually feel relatively certain that what I have found resembles the truth. But... Occasionally, I encounter so slippery a character that I am left uncertain about nearly every fact of their life. These moments are particularly astonishing when the person in question was relatively famous, and there's a large amount of material available to work with. The subject of this month's episode is just such a person. Her life story has been so embellished, not least of which by herself, that telling fact from fantasy is now impossible. But that's exactly what makes her so fascinating. A Broadway actress, singer, convicted murderer, novelist, and all-around entertainer, this person may or may not have been trans. But either way, they've left us with a life worth remembering. Join us as we look at the life of Ray Bourbon, the girl of the Golden West. Now, if life begins at 40, as you've oftentimes heard it told, our span of life is five short years because at 45, we're old. A lot of us may kid ourselves, try hard to be young, but five and 40 added up totals old age just begun. Now, when your steps grow slightly slower and you puff along the way, and you're using hair restore on the few in front that are gray, and you can't remember spades and trumps to save you very alive, brother, you've reached the ripe old age of 45. Now, when a slender pair of ankles makes your blood begin to race, and your heart beats slightly faster as you pass pretty pace, and you crave a Where Ray was concerned, Broadway composer Robert Wright told his biographer, we simply never knew what was real and what wasn't. Ray was so notorious for fabricating the details of her life that we can't even say with any certainty where or when she was born, or under what name, or to which family. She may have been born Hal Waddell in Texarkana, Texas in 1892, or she very well may have been born Ramon Icares in Chihuahua, Texas in 1898 suggesting she may have been Mexican. Through different tellings over the years, Ray revealed that she was the last of the Habsburg Bourbons, referring to the European royals, or, alternately, that her mother traveled to America so that she could be born free. Ray claimed that her mother died shortly after giving birth, but, again, who can say whether any of this is true? It could just as easily be true that in an era of rampant homophobia, Ray didn't have contact with her family or didn't want anyone telling her family about her glamorous life on the stage as a female impersonator. As for a father, some of Ray's closest friends recall being told that she was the illegitimate child of a Texas congressman. But a 1937 application for a social security card has listed a Frank T. Waddell as father, 
a cursory Google search, did not reveal Frank T. Waddell to be a former Texas congressman. But who knows if that name is even real? Ray later revealed to the FBI that she had lied on the application, changing her date of birth from 1892 to 1902 in an act of vanity. This fabricated social security card application includes her mother as Elizabeth, with no maiden name listed. What seems relatively certain is that Ray grew up on a ranch in Texas. There, she learned how to ride horses and developed a lifelong affinity for animals. This affinity will be important later, so just tuck that one away for now. Ray claimed that during her youth, her parents sent her away to London, England to study, where she apparently took up an interest in the theater and began performing around the turn of the century. A Victorian rancher's child seems an unlikely suspect for an international education, and the addition of details about being trained in pantomime by none other than Charlie Chaplin himself stretches credulity. Ray's story picks up again after a supposed return to Texas, where she began running guns for Mexican revolutionary and supposed friend of the family, Pancho Villa. Not only did she run guns for Pancho Villa, she claimed, but she did it all in drag as La Señora Diablo. My Duolingo-level Spanish makes me question the gendering of the word Diablo here, so I'll leave that up to my Spanish-speaking listeners to decide if Ray was using that correctly or not, but regardless, it's how she wrote it. Whether or not Ray worked for Pancho Villa is debatable, though it would certainly bolster her claim to Mexican identity if true. She was, however, interviewed about the experience by one reporter due to her detailed knowledge of Villa's tactics. By the mid-1910s, Ray was married to a woman, and in 1918, she fathered a son. The family life didn't suit Ray, and in 1920, according to her version of events, she submitted a photo of herself in drag to a contest in Photoplay magazine under the name Ray Bourbon. The prize? A studio contract in Hollywood. By the 1920s, Hollywood was a major moneymaker, each studio churning out a constant stream of silent pictures using their roster of contract stars. And what contract would be better than with Paramount? Ray won the contest, but the studio executives were, mm, let's say, perplexed to discover that Ray Bourbon was not the Mae West-type cis woman they expected. Still, fair is fair, and Ray apparently got to work the contract. One of the Paramount people noticed that she had a vague resemblance to Estelle Taylor, one of their contract actresses who was more known for being the girlfriend of boxer Jack Dempsey. They put Ray to work as her body double and stunt person. On the Paramount lot, Ray managed to make friends with a number of other gay actors, including Rudolph Valentino. She appeared alongside Valentino, dying in his arms, after a bullfight in the 1922 silent film Blood and Sand. 
This appearance is being confirmed, and if Ray is to be believed, she also appeared in a number of other pictures, including Cecil B. DeMille's Manslaughter and alongside Gloria Swanson in Beyond the Rocks, both from that same year. She can also be seen in Pola Negri's first film, Belladonna, in 1923. You can also catch a glimpse of Ray later in the talky Gold Diggers of 1937, which was released in, you guessed it, 1937. Around 1922, Ray took to the vaudeville stage in a double act with Bert Sherry. Bert played the straight man to Ray's outrageous and over-the-top female impersonation character. They spent much of the next two years touring the U.S. and England together and remained in contact for most of the rest of their lives, though Bert is curiously absent from Ray's memoirs. During this period, Ray would later claim in one of her hilarious monologues in the 1950s that she and Bert Sherry attended a gay drag wedding in a church in Chicago. It is such a remarkable and obviously embellished story that I'm going to play it here in full. This occurred in Chicago several years ago in the 1920s. I won't say which 20 because after all, why should I give my age away? Not that you all don't know that I'm over 16. But this big bitch and myself, Miss Sherry, you know her. She's, she looks exactly like a bottle with legs spread. Mary, when she sits down, you've never seen so much in your life, all over the chair. You could cut enough off and feed the hogs for a week. So anyway, we were working Chicago, so to speak. And these two friends of ours, they decided they were going to get married to each other. Well, even in Chicago, in those days, you just didn't do that kind of going on. <laughs> that is not as open as they planned on doing it. But they decided they were going to defy convention. They sent out a hundred engraved invitations to the wedding. They were going to have it in the church, no less, on the north side. You can check all this in the police records. It's all there, headlines and everything. So they decided they were going to have this church wedding. And they were going to have it on a Thursday. Well, the minister of the church was going into the Wisconsin Northwoods, whatever he was going into the Northwoods for. That's what he went. And his son was 20 years old, who had been under suspicion for ages. But after this mess, they proved it on her. She was going to perform the ceremony. <laughs> So we got a hold of an engraved invitation, and away we went to the church. And I said to her, I said, do you think we really ought to go into the thing? She's Mary, I wouldn't miss it. She called me Mary for short. I don't know why, but we always could use that name to dispense with each other. So we ducked into the church. I have never in my life seen anything like it. There was young men turning into young women right in front of my very eyes. Lipsticks, powder puffs. Oh, it was grand. And I said to Miss Sherry, I said, let's go back into the ante room and say hello to the two who are getting married. So we went on back in the ante room, said hello to the aunties, and then we said hello to the two that were getting married. And they were having a heated argument over which one was going to wear the veil. <laughs> I said, why not tear it in two and both of you wear it? So they drew straws, they'd drawn everything else, and decided they would tear it in two and wear it. So, Mary, they looked lovely. I have never seen anything so grand as they come down the easel. They were stalking up the easel there. When all of a sudden they got right up to the thing and the young man who was going to perform the ceremony was standing there looking as gay as a lark. Oh, she looked grand. She, you couldn't tell who was the bride with her standing there. And she looked down at these two and said, do you, before they could deny it, the law came in. <laughs> I have never seen so many police in my life. If they had all flashed the badges once, we'd have been completely blind with the reflection of the lights. But I had such a commotion as happened. Everybody was stripping drag off the bitches or running for cover. And I said to me, Sherry, this is no time to run. They'll catch her sure as hell. So I said, let's hide in the organ. She says, where is one that size? And I don't start a little argument at this time of the day. I said, not that, the pipe organ. She says, well, how? I said, come, 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 dear. And so we flew around behind the organ and climbed up these steps. 
and we got in these great big pipes. I got in F and she got in G. <laughs> I said, don't slip too far down in this thing. You know, you got to get out of it eventually. So I said, we'll just hang by the armpit. Somebody played deep in the heart of Texas. We'd have froze to death. So there we hung. Well, you have never seen such a commotion in your life. The bitch is running for cover. It's the first time I've ever seen baggage go down Michigan Boulevard with stained glass halos on, right through them windows. Vroom, like that. So there we hung, and the wagons were backing up, and the syringes were blowing, and the police were fainting. Such a commotion. When finally it cleared away, everything was quieted down. Hip sticks, uh, lipsticks, <laughs> powder puffs. I've never seen it. It looked like somebody had thrown a hand grenade in Elizabeth Arden's. So I said to me, Sherry, I said, Mary, come, let's get out of this organ and get on away from here. I am fit to be tired. I'm tired. So we started to climb up out of the organ. <laughs> I did not. I belched. So anyway, the start of this thing was we got out of this organ. I got up out of F, and she started to get out of G and couldn't budge. So I said, well, all right, Mary, hold still. I'll go down and turn the organ on and blow you up out of it. So I got downstairs and turned this great big electric organ on and find the key. Finally, I did. All he would do is just shudder and make her cheeks get red. Wouldn't budge her. Honestly, if they should have had false teeth, it'd blown every one of them right out of her mouth. I have never heard such scream, so I said, all right, you hold still. I'll go home and get Lil, and we'll drag a diamond tooth Lil was our landlady. A great big blonde packet. When she couldn't get gin, she'd drink blonde X. And you know in the 20s, blonde X, it made your hair snow white or made you transparent. We knew when she had to go half the time before she did. You could see her every move from the time her food left her mouth until it left the body. She was a camp. Always we'd say, go, go, dear, go, 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 quick. Go blouse up the parlor. So I went home by alleys and devious routes. And finally when I got there, I banged on the door. I said, Lil! She says, go away, Mary, I'm busy, my nerves are upset. So I opened the door and I said, what a time of day for this. I said, look, Miss Sherry's in trouble, she's in dirt. She says, that is not new. So I said to them, come on, let's go back. So they six of them got them put the uniforms on and eight of us went back to the church. And it, we dragged her out of this organ. Well, as you know, Lil was such a camp. She had a diamond in one of her teeth on the side, not the front tooth, but on the side. And at home, she was always smiling with that tooth where you'd see it. But when she went out at night, she'd smile with her lip down. So one night she forgot to smile at the wrong time and a great big sailor knocked her tooth right out of her mouth into a urinal. I have never seen such grabbing for a tooth in my life. Finally, she got a hold of it and swallowed it. Oh, what that diamond through went through before we got it back. <laughs> we kept her on paper for 11 days. Finally, we got it back. It had a high polish, but we did get it back. So anyway, we went on home by devious route, and we had some tea to quiet our nerves. And I said to Lil, I said, Mary, this is going to be a camera. There's going to be a lot of scandal come from this, this whole mess. She says, well, that ain't nothing new after all. So we were planning that night to have a little kind of a soiree. And I said, I don't think we should have a party tonight because the law might come. She says, oh, Mary, what difference does it make? So I said, all right. So we decided we would have what is called a drag. All you had to do was give her four inches of string and a feather fan, and she was in drag. That one was a camp. So they gave the party, and we were drinking and screaming and laughing. All I was wearing was a bungalow apron because I realized if I had anything else on puke on myself, I couldn't get rid of it. I just throw the bungalow apron off, and I wore a blonde wig. It had a heavy Marcel wave in it and <laughs> French heel shoes. And Lil wore the same thing. We were always prepared, you know what I mean? If you spilled anything on yourself, it's quite all right. So she got a little sick, and she was mad anyway. So I said, come on in the bathroom, Mary. And you're sick as you are. You might as well hit the tub. She couldn't hit the Pacific Ocean. She had aimed in a western direction, but we aimed for the tub this time. So lo and behold, while we were in there, the law came into the thing again. Man, I, they just kicking doors down like fiends. And I said to her, look, the law is here. And the house was built on the side of a hill anyway, and we'd gone in on the ground level. And it was three floors down and back. I said, how do we get out of here? She said, come, Mary, we'll open the window and fly out of this place. So we opened the window and flew out of the place and fell three floors down into the arms of the biggest policeman I have ever seen in my entire life. 
And he fell right on top of me of all times. Any other time, I wouldn't have minded so much, but he fell on top of me. And she jumped up and was running down the alley and said, Come back here, Broad, and roll this guy off of me. So she came back and rolled him off me, and then she rolled him, and we flew on down around the block. I said, We can't go home this way. Good heavens, you know that as well as I do, because we're going to be spotted. So she says, Well, I'll flag a cab. So I said, where are we going to get a cab? So we flagged a cab, or she flagged a cab, brother. Of course, we didn't have a stinking dime on us, and went over to a friend's house of ours, and she didn't have any money either, so... But anyway, Diamond Tooth Lil paid the bill. It's amazing how she can get out of situations like that. Another time, I'll tell you another experience. <laughs> Goodbye. By the final years of Prohibition, the pansy craze quickly took over the hip and happening parts of America. Suddenly, it was cool to watch gay performers and female impersonators. Vaudeville was yesterday, and today was about straight people going to gay clubs to be entertained while they drink illegal liquor. Not unlike the hordes of straight people who now turn out to gay clubs to watch drag queens thanks to the popularity of RuPaul's Drag Race. Clubs opened in New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco with female impersonators, gay singers, and gay comedians on the bill. Ray fit in perfectly. The pansy craze attracted the attention of the press, and within a few months, police began the raids of gay establishments that would continue throughout the 20th century, inciting the Stonewall riots in 1969 and continuing up until the 1990s. Despite the raids, pansy clubs remained popular for several years. In part, this was due to the social mixing that occurred as a result of prohibition. If the club was already illegal, then straight white people who felt like living dangerously were more open to accept desegregation, both in terms of sexuality and race. A rose-tinted view of this moment would have us believe that the shared experience of criminality created a sense of solidarity between straight whites and those they would otherwise scorn. But the reality is more likely that the presence of black jazz musicians and dancers and pansy singers and female impersonators added illicit thrills for the straight whites who saw themselves as slumming it. This interpretation seems to be confirmed when, in 1933, Prohibition ended, and with it promptly ended the pansy craze. The following year, Hollywood began strictly enforcing the Hayes Code, which banned positive depictions of homosexual characters, further driving the divide between the gay world and the straight world that had, for three brief years during the pansy craze, once seemed permeable. Ray's stage show, Boys Will Be Girls, at Tate's Cafe in San Francisco was shut down by police raids after being broadcast live on a local radio station. The relentless arrest by police caused Ray and other pansy performers to stop performing in drag. Ray continued on stage, now dressed as a man, and produced a series of party records with the help of several musician friends, including Robert Wright and Chet Forrest. Party records, for those who haven't watched The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, were the forerunners of stand-up comedy. With lewd, adult themes, party records were sold under the counter in record shops and played on jukeboxes at nightclubs. Ray's act for these party albums consisted of comedic monologues over piano accompaniment. In 1932, Ray also wrote and self-published a novel titled Hookers. She published it under the name Richard F. Mann. 
It purported to be the true tale of many of the sex workers of Juarez she had known. By the 1940s, Ray returned to drag. She performed at the legendary drag club Finocchio's in San Francisco and even ran her own club, the Rendezvous, in Los Angeles. Among those who worked at the Rendezvous included Harry Hay, future father of the gay rights movement, who would pretend to be an audience member and throw out lines for Ray to pretend to improvise on. Hollywood stars took a particular interest in female impersonation shows, and among Ray's fans included both Bob Hope and Bing Crosby. Ray also returned to the legitimate stage, even taking her show to Carnegie Hall. The New York Daily News covered the show, writing, You could hardly claw your way through a mob of very spectacular characters who bought out Carnegie Hall. They turned out one and all for the gayest recital of the season, even Bourbon, who at one point wore a costume which made one think of Spivy riding side saddle, admonished the audience at intermission, Go out and gossip on the stairs. Don't go in the street. They watch this joint closely. All of this work brought Ray to the attention of Mae West, who cast Ray in two of her stage shows, first in her take on Catherine the Great, and then in a revival of Diamond Lil. In the revival, Mae West wrote Ray a part especially for her. But Ray's drinking and age began to take a toll. Her ribald jokes grew more and more lewd, alienating mainstream audiences. By the 1950s, she was performing in tourist cities like Miami. In an attempt to reignite her popularity, Ray released a series of 10 self-published comedy albums. The albums were popular and remained in print well into the 1970s. Thankfully, almost all of Ray's recordings have been digitized and can be found on the Internet Archive. While much of this work is hilarious and astoundingly openly gay, it also includes the kind of racist comedy that was common at the time, such as tracks like Mr. Wong that, well, it's better if I don't describe. So listen with caution. Things took an intriguing turn during this period. In 1952, American trans woman Christine Jorgensen stepped a well-turned heel onto the tarmac at Idlewild Airport in New York City after a sex change in Copenhagen and ignited a mass media maelstrom the likes of which had never been seen. Ray, like the rest of the world, took notice. Ray's first album of the 1950s, in fact, was named An Evening in Copenhagen, perhaps as an homage to Christine. Her obsession with Christine continued over the next few years, culminating in the release of an album of trans-themed comedy and music titled Let Me Tell You About My Operation. Ray Bourbon claimed to have undergone a sex change operation herself in Juarez at the hands of a Dr. Emrick Zekely. Ray claimed Dr. Zekely was a former Hungarian gynecologist now living as a refugee in Mexico. During the operation, Ray also claimed, the surgeon had discovered ovarian tissue. This is similar to many claims of trans women during this period, 
and still a few today, who attempt to validate the nature of their gender identity by claiming doctors discovered evidence of an intersex condition mid-surgery. Whether or not any of these claims are true is hotly debated. But none more hotly than Ray. Newspapers across the country covered Ray's apparent sex change operation, including Variety. The Monday, May 28, 1956 cover of the daily New York Journal America features photos of Ray Bourbon with the headline, Ray, now a boxum Ray. Female impersonator never need fake again, says surgery made him a her. Ray told the newspaper, psychologically, I think I'm going to be happier than I've ever been in my entire life. Now I am what I always wanted to be. Variety's article included more detail. Apparently, it was a series of operations that Ray underwent from September 1955 to May 1956, and she convalesced in El Paso, Texas, under the care of a Dr. Vincent M. Ravel. On her new album, Ray included this amazing song, Let Me Tell You About My Operation. Have you got a minute? Good. Well, just sit down and relax and let me tell you about my operation. <laughs> oh, this is the real dirt. Of course I had it done. To all of you that know me, you might have seen it coming. <laughs> so this will be no surprise. Everyone asks me, how does it feel? Well, it feels just fine to me. I can be the woman I've always wanted to be. For the change, I went south of the border. It took me just days to pack. I arrived there with excess baggage, but I had a lot less coming back. There's been a change in the gender. Whether or not she ever actually had surgery or was simply trying to cash in on the stories of Christine Jorgensen and Charlotte McLeod is, like so much about her life, unclear. However, according to her FBI file, she had maintained that she had had an operation when questioned about it by the FBI in the 1960s, though she said then that the surgery had been prompted by cancer, presumably testicular or prostate. Friends later remembered her saying that the real reason for the operation was to avoid anti-cross-dressing arrests that were common at the time. Some of her friends also claimed that her genitals did not appear to have been changed. We can perhaps speculate that she may have had an orchiectomy due to cancer and then saw the opportunity to revamp her female impersonation show by riding the coattails of the now world-famous Christine Jorgensen, who herself had turned to the stage after her sex change. On the other hand, we don't really know. Like many female impersonators, she very well may have been trans and may very well have had surgery for the purposes of transition. Or perhaps she saw cancer as an opportunity to get a sex change. We'll never know exactly which story is true. Unlike other researchers, I err on the side of caution and choose to believe she did in fact have some kind of surgery that, at least in her mind and public statement, was transition-related. Unfortunately, the bid to reignite her career by jumping on the sex change train backfired. 
Now clubs had no idea how to advertise her. One club in West Hollywood billed her as Miss Ray Bourbon, not a female impersonator. And though the show sold out, she was immediately arrested on stage for female impersonation. Awaiting trial, she returned to the same club to perform in men's clothing, but she ended up being banned from performing in all Los Angeles nightclubs due to the lewdness of her act by the Los Angeles County Welfare Commission. Refusing to take that lying down, Ray booked a show at a legitimate theater over which the commission had no jurisdiction. Ray went on the lam from her 30-day sentence by going on tour. But she faced further arrests in Seattle, New Orleans, El Paso, and Miami. In Miami, funnily enough, she was arrested for impersonating a man. The 1960s were a period of decline and increasingly bizarre turns in Ray's life and career. In 1960, Ray attended a homosexual party in Washington, D.C. The party was also attended by a number of closeted men in government. In September of that same year, William H. Martin and Bernan F. Mitchell, two NSA cryptologists, defected to the Soviet Union. The NSA would later write in secret internal communications that, quote, beyond any doubt, no other event has had or is likely to have in the future a greater impact on the agency's security program. Martin and Mitchell had defected over concerns over the possibility of an atomic war and due to criticisms they had over American spying. Within days of defecting, the chairman of the House Un-American Activities Committee claimed Martin and Mitchell were homosexuals and thus began an attempt by both the press and President Eisenhower to oust all homosexuals in government positions, believing them to be particularly at risk of blackmail and defection. Eisenhower ordered a list to be created of all homosexuals in government. The NSA announced that it purged 26 employees for being sexual deviates, though it mentioned that not all were homosexuals. Seeing this in the news, Ray contacted the FBI to discreetly mention that she had attended a Washington homosexual party alongside Martin and Mitchell. While this may seem like another ludicrous claim by a known liar, recently declassified files include a photo of Ray at said party. FBI agents attempted to contact Ray a few months later, but Ray claimed she'd been shot at in Detroit and was afraid to speak with them further. They managed to pin her down for an interview in February 1961. Ray's account differed from that of the party's host, a closeted civilian employee for the Secretary of the Army. But the FBI believed Ray was telling the truth. Ray's passport was subsequently stolen later that year while she was performing in Baltimore. Interestingly, Martin and Mitchell may not have been homosexual at all. The accusation may in fact have been a smear campaign by the House Un-American Activities Committee chair. While living in exile, both ended up marrying Russian women. Of course, none of that rules out the possibility that they may have been bisexual. Mitchell, in fact, had acknowledged to psychologists previously that he'd been involved with both men and women and was untroubled by his sexuality. Both of the close friends ended up deeply regretting their choice to defect, feeling suckered in by Soviet propaganda, and ended up living, as one report put it, on the skids. Martin attempted to be repatriated to the United States, but was unsuccessful. 
he eventually moved to Mexico. Ray's career continued to decline, but she somehow managed to talk investors into giving her money for her latest show, Daddy Was a Lady. According to one audience member, the second act included a group of trained dogs, some dyed different colors, who urinated on cue. But Ray's conflicts with the producer of the lewdness of the show caused it to quickly close. Ray then went on tour with the famed Jewel Box Review, which you can hear more about in our episode on Stormy de la Vieille. Remember how I said at the beginning of the episode that Ray's early life on the ranch had helped her develop a lifelong affinity for animals? Well, we've finally come to the point in our story in which this is important. On September 6, 1967, Ray was driving to a performance with the Follies and Juarez. Her old Cadillac and trailer was full not only of all of her worldly possessions and performance outfits, but also all of her pets. When it broke down on the side of the road and caught fire, Ray was only able to save her pets. She lost everything else and wasn't able to make it to the gig in Juarez. A couple of months later, another car broke down on her in Texas. This time, she left her pets with a kennel called Pet Azoo while she was on tour. The kennel was run by Mr. and Mrs. A.D. Blunt. But a few months later, Ray's money ran out and the Blunts sold her pets for medical research, devastating Ray. Ray did everything to try to get them back, including writing to newspaper columnists and the Texas governor. When this didn't work, she began calling the Blunts and making threats. Nothing could get the poor animals back. In all likelihood, they were already dead. And in December 1968, Ray hired her young drifter friend, Bobby Randall Crane, to go try to find the animals and perhaps beat up Mr. Bloom. Bobby took along his friend Bobby Eugene Crisco, and Ray paid them $30 and lent them her car to go do the deed. The two Bobbies got a further wire transfer of $50 from Ray while en route. Crisco, however, took things too far and ended up killing Mr. Bloom. A few days later, all three were charged with murder. While awaiting trial, Ray suffered a major heart attack. The state accused Ray of plotting the murder, but Ray's attorney countered that Mr. Bloom remained Ray's only key to finding the dogs, which puts killing him entirely out of the question. But in February 1970, Ray was convicted as an accomplice to murder. Being 75 years old, frail, and ill, the court chose not to impose the death sentence. Instead, they sentenced her to 99 years in prison. Ray's Hollywood friends did not come to her rescue as she'd hoped, even despite her writing a letter to Variety. However, the local press did treat her as the star she was, interviewing her about her life and career. According to Zagria, while in prison, she once escaped because a guard had left a door open, but she'd simply gone to sleep around the corner. She was easily found and put back inside. Her lawyer supplied her with a typewriter, and she wrote an extensive and probably highly embellished memoir while in prison. This memoir is now owned by Randy A. Riddle, upon whose research much of this episode is based. We can hope that it will be prepared for publication eventually. In July 1971, Ray suffered another heart attack. This time, she died. 
She was cremated, and her ashes delivered to her close friends Robert Wright and Chet Forrest. In true form, her slippery life story even managed to find its way onto her death certificate, where her father is listed as Franz Joseph of the Throne of Austria. Almost nothing is certain about Ray Bourbon's life, not least of which whether or not she was really trans or just an opportunist riding on the wave of publicity created by Christine Jorgensen. And perhaps at the end of the day, that doesn't really matter. What she's given us instead of the cold hard facts is an eccentric life story full of gossip and outright lies, and that, my dear listeners, is gold. To me, anyway. I don't want to be a madam. I want to be one of the girls. I know I'm not pretty. I know I'm not cute. But I'd like to shake my heels in a house of ill repute. I don't want to be a madam. I want to be one of the girls. I may look like Polly Adler's daughter. I may look like Thanks for listening to this episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults is written, recorded, and produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is recorded in London, England. Check out the show notes for all the sources I used. If you like the show, please subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Google Play. You can also tweet at me at Morgan M. Page on Twitter. Join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. Good night. I was always kind of lazy. I tire easily, it is said. A madam is on her feet all night, but the girls can go to bed. A madam is like an actress. She's through before she starts. No matter how well she auditions, it's the girls that gets the parts. I don't want to be a madam. I want to be one of the girls. I will take Elvis Presley. We know he's not chased, but his sideburns tickles when his motorcycle's race. I don't want to be a madam. I want to be one of the girls. Now, I don't want to be a madam. I just want to be one of the girls called Ray. The madams carry the dough to the bank, but it's the girls that sock it away. So don't you call me madam, and don't you call me sister, and after the hospital bill I got, don't you dare to call me mister. I don't want to be a madam. I want to be one of the girls. I know I'm no beauty. I do my work well, and I don't give green stamps to the merchandise I sell. I don't want to be a madam. I want to be one of the girls, oh yes.